your Bibles, if you would, to Genesis chapter 30. I'm going to be looking at verses 14 to 21. The mandrakes or the man. Now, in this lesson, we are going to find that the scheming and the rivalry between the two wives of Jacob, Leah and Rachel, continues. To this point, now, Jacob has had eight sons. Four were from Leah, two were from Rachel's handmaid, Bilhah, and two were from Leah's handmaid, Zilpah. Now, there are yet to be four more sons and one daughter born to um, Jacob. Now, in this study, we're going to learn of the accounts of Leah's, the birth of Leah's two additional sons. She's going to have two more, Issachar and Zebulun. And then we're going to learn about the birth of her daughter, Dinah. Uh, We're also going to learn about the birth of Rachel's first son, Joseph. So the, the event that, those events are what we're going to be looking at this morning. But as you can see in our outline here, let me put that up real quickly. Um, in the first part of our outline, we're going to be looking at the events which preceded, immediately preceded the additional births of Leah, her two sons. And that event had to do with Reuben, her first son, Reuben's discovery of some mandrakes. So we're going to be talking about the mandrake fruit in Mandrakes of Reuben, part one. Then in the second part of our study, we're going to look at the motherhood of Rachel as she finally gets pregnant and uh, gives birth to Joseph. We will also look at the spiritual maturity of Rachel, evidenced by the comments that she makes when Joseph is born. And then last of all, and I hope you don't have to leave early, because the best part is for the end. In part three, we're going to take an exciting closer look at the meanings of the names of Jacob's 12 sons. And we're going to see how they prophetically spell out for us the message of redemption. So I hope you'll be able to stay around for that. Okay, let's begin now by looking at the mandrakes of Reuben. And uh, for this, we have, as you can see, five subdivisions. We're going to look at a discovery, a deal, a desire, a dowry, and a daughter. So let's look, first of all, just at the beginning part of verse 14, a discovery. Chapter 30, verse 14, it says, Reuben went in the days of wheat harvest and found mandrakes in the field and brought them unto his mother Leah. Stop right there. Well, at the time of this mandrake episode that we're going to be looking at, Jacob's oldest son, Reuben was probably around five years old. And one day during the season of the wheat harvest, when the fields were full of reapers and there was a feeling of festivity in the air because that was a special time to celebrate, Reuben was apparently, you know, there were a lot of people in the field, so he wasn't out there by himself, but he was out there walking around in the wheat field And he spotted some mandrake plants. And perhaps the the pretty flower of the mandrake is what attracted his attention. Whether or not he understood the significance of this plant to the adults of his culture, we really don't know. He was kind of young to maybe understand that at five years of age. I don't know what attracted him to the mandrake, but whatever the reason is uh, was, he picked them, the fruit, and he brought it back to his mother. 
And it was definitely very prized because ancient superstition claimed that it was an aphrodisiac. An aphrodisiac is uh, <laughs> a sexual stimulant. You know, you've heard of Viagra? That's what it was, kind of like Viagra. And it was believed to be an inducer of fertility. And as we've been studying, because motherhood was considered, you know, such an important factor for a woman in that ancient culture, discovering mandrakes, especially in the area of Upper Mesopotamia, was like finding gold. Now, mandrakes drew, grew abundantly in the land of Palestine, in the land of Israel, but they were very rare to find further up north uh, in the area of Padan Aram, which is where this story took place. So finding this was like finding gold. Now, the mandrake is um, a small, orangish-yellow. The fruit is orangish-yellow. Um, one commentator said it was like a, a berry-like fruit. Another one said it was more like a tomato. Now, I didn't know if he meant big tomatoes or cherry tomatoes, but maybe it was like cherry tomatoes, because I think it's more smaller, smaller than tomatoes. But it um, had a fruit, and that's what you ate, was the fruit. You didn't eat the root. Now, here's the root here. This is, it starts up here, and you can see it behind that leaf and goes down there. The root was actually poisonous. <clears throat> you did not eat the root. But somehow or another, they would also take the root and do something with it and um, use it as a narcotic and also as an emetic. You know what an emetic is? It, it's an inducer of vomiting, right? Now, what was interesting is that um, man, oh, mandrakes are also known as love apples or may apples, two different terms for them. And it was, it's interesting that if you, you could easily, the root was sort of like a carrot root or a carrot. <laughs> the, carrot the root is the carrot, right? <laughs> but you could take it, they said, and you could easily pinch it. It was soft. The root was soft. You could pinch it into a rough figure of a man. And this picture, which I got out of the International Bible Encyclopedia, or whatever the name of that thing is, <laughs> you could see, like, if here, here's the neck, here's the shoulder, go down here, here's two legs. You could see that that's true. You could, it does sort of look like a man. So maybe that's where they got the idea of it um, being an aphrodisiac. But anyway, he found these love apples and took them to his mother. And word must have traveled very quickly, uh, especially among, among the women of that community, that Leah was now in possession of these mandrake, these valuable fertility fruits. Because very soon, Rachel was knocking at her tent door. Even the possibility that the mandrake fruit might help her conceive got Rachel very excited. So let's look at her pleading request for some of uh, Leah, Leah's um, mandrakes. And for this, we'll look at the end of verse 14 and also the uh, verse 15. All right, after Reuben brought them to his mother, it says, Then Rachel said to Leah, Give me, I pray thee, of thy son's mandrakes. And she, Leah, said unto her, Is it a small matter that thou hast taken my husband? And wouldest thou take away my son's mandrakes also? And Rachel said, Therefore he, meaning Jacob, shall lie with thee tonight for thy son's mandrakes. Here's where we get the title, Mandrakes for the Man. 
All right, a deal. It was so very important to Rachel to get the mandrakes from Leah that we even notice she uh, throws in a little politeness in her demand this time because when she made her request, notice she says, give me, I pray thee. That's equivalent to saying please. And also notice she avoided the threat or else I die. (laughs) She could have said, Give me the mandrakes or else I die, because that's exactly what she had said earlier to her husband. Remember when she said, give me children or else I die. So she's showing some maturity here, isn't she? Although not a whole lot, but she's showing some, because at least in her demand, she is polite and she doesn't give some foolish kind of a threat. Now, it's worth noting that Rachel's focus was still very much on herself. And this is emphasized by the repeat of her words, give me. It's rather sad to to realize that the first recorded words that we have at all of Rachel were those which were spoken to her husband back in verse um, 1 of this chapter, and they started out with the words what? Give me. And now here we find that her first recorded words to her sister are, again, words which start, or, or a sentence which starts with the words, give me. So she sounds like a little selfish child, you know, kind of like, Maybe the baby sister. (laughs) I should be careful. Some of you are probably the baby sisters. (laughs) Now, in Rachel's desperate desire to obtain the mandrakes from Leah, we realize that her previous scheme, you know, to get children through her handmaid, that scheme had not brought her the joy and the peace that she had hoped for. She may have claimed, you know, that she had been vindicated, by the birth of Bilhah's first son, Dan, back in verse 6. Remember, she said that God had judged her or vindicated her. And she may have claimed that she had prevailed over her sister by the birth of Bilhah's second son, Naphtali, in verse 8. But she really had only been fooling herself. She still felt the heavy burden of her own barrenness, even with those two adopted sons. She still felt a reproach upon her uh, because of her empty womb. And this is clear to us really by her later comments at the time of Joseph's birth. You know, when she finally does have a son of her own, um, she, she finally means it when she says after his birth, God hath taken away my reproach. That's in verse 23. We'll actually be looking at that later in this lesson. That she still struggled with her sister in that this ongoing baby war is also obvious because she had apparently been keeping Jacob from Leah's tent. And we hear about this really in Leah's response to her sister's request for the um, mandrakes. Verse 15 contains for us Leah's first display of anger. You know, Rachel had displayed anger uh, when she screamed at her husband, give me the children, give me children or else I die. And Jacob had also displayed anger um, actually on two occasions. He displayed anger to Laban on the morning after his wedding night deception. And again, he displayed anger when he responded to Rachel's unreasonable threat for children. But to this point, Leah has only expressed loneliness and a desire for her husband's love. 
Now, however, she's angry, (laughs) and she's angry at her younger sister, Rachel, and we can almost empathize. We can sympathize with her reason. By her response to Rachel, we find that her younger sister had apparently been keeping Jacob to herself. You know, she says, is it a small matter that thou hast taken my husband? As we speculated in our last lesson, it appears that Rachel had um, grown so jealous of Leah's fertility that she managed to get Jacob to cease from fulfilling his marital obligations to Leah. To have children, she had been willing you know, to share her husband with her handmaid, but no way did she want to share him anymore with Leah. So Leah, we were told, left bearing. In other words, she stopped having children. We saw that in verse 35 of chapter 29. Then, because Jacob was no longer coming to her, Leah stooped to having children by Jacob through her handmaid, Zilpah. And it got all, you know, messed up, didn't it? Now we find that Rachel had come to her after having taken her husband from her and demanded that Leah give her the mandrakes, which Leah's son had found. So is it any wonder then that Leah gets upset with her younger sister? Rachel wanted everything. You know, she she was going to leave Leah with no man and with no mandrakes. So we can understand her anger here. But seeing that Leah was not very likely to just hand over the mandrakes to Rachel, Rachel proposed a bargain. Just like her father, she was a wheeler-dealer. She would swap one night with Jacob for the mandrakes. And that single remark there that she makes in verse 15, you know, she, she says, Therefore he shall lie with thee tonight for thy son's mandrakes. That statement tells us of her hold that she had on her husband. It was uh, okay for him to have sons by the handmaids, but Rachel had not wanted any possibility of more sons coming from Leah. Yet, here we find that she was desperate for those mandrakes, and she was willing to take the risk that in just one night with Jacob, Leah would not again conceive. After all, Leah would not have the mandrakes. She would have them. Isn't this something I just... <laughs> oh, me. I feel like we're doing... I had th- We have some teenage girls in our night study. These glasses are driving me crazy. You can see that. Can oh, something happened in my purse. Will you go through my other purse and see if you can find another pair? Or my other purse. My purse. <laughs> They're driving me nuts. Anyway, there's, uh, we have a bunch of teenagers. Do we have any teenagers? Yeah, we have a few teenagers in here. But anyway, we have more in the night study. And three of the little girls came up to me last week. And they say, wow, Mrs. Caldwell, we're talking about things my mom, our mom won't even let us read books like this. <laughs> and they said, but this is the Bible. Okay, so anyway, this bargain here, what does it remind you of? It should, it should be kind of reminiscent. Right, of Jacob's trade-off with his older brother Esau. Remember how he had swapped Esau a bowl of beans for Esau's birthright. And we called the title of that lesson, Beans for the Birthright. 
And it really, to me, it was rather, it's rather humorous, it's probably humorous to you too, that now Jacob himself was the object of the trade between the younger sister and the older sister. I mean, before his trade-off had been a younger brother and an older brother, now he's the, the trade commodity between a younger sister and an older sister. No luck, huh? Okay, all right. Well, I'll just keep fussing with him. So instead of beans for the birthright, it's mandrakes for the man. Jacob's former behavior in his father's house had, you know, that beans for the birthright thing, that had definitely caused some terrible sibling rivalry between him and Esau. And now, with his two sister wives, he could not get away from the very thing which he himself had caused. Uh, you know, with his own brother. He couldn't get away from sibling rivalry. And again, he was the cause of, of the whole thing. He was the cause of it. He was truly, you see, in more ways than one, he was reaping what he had sown. He who had been the master at bargaining had been beaten at his own game by his father-in-law who had traded him, here's another one, all right, wrestling women for wageless work. How do you like that one? Beans for the birthright, <laughs> mandrakes for the man, and wrestling women for wageless work. So he'd been, been beaten by his father-in-law, and now Jacob himself was up for rent. So you see what all his bargaining had done for him? He's the one up for rent. He had been reduced to a trading commodity by both Laban and now by Laban's two daughters. You know, it had been the common custom for men back in those days to use their women. I mean, you all agree with that. We've seen that in, really in the way that Laban treated his own daughters and, and sold them practically uh, to, to gain what he wanted. And we've seen it in the way that slave girls were treated. You know, it was the common custom for men to use their women. And so it's rather interesting, at least to us as women, <laughs> to see that now that practice was reversed. Jacob was being used here. Jacob was actually the item being sold in this deal. Now, Rachel in this scene definitely shows that she was her father's daughter. She, she shows something of the uh, bargaining instincts of her father Laban. She did not want to argue. She didn't even try to argue with Leah, uh, but she merely made her proposal. She proposed her deal. She knew that as much as she wanted children, Leah, I mean, as much, yeah, as much as she wanted children, Leah wanted Jacob. She also knew that the mandrakes would do Leah absolutely no good without the man, right? Without Jacob. And Leah's silence, she doesn't say anything. Uh, so her silence to the offer of one night with Jacob for Reuben's mandrakes, her silence indi indicates to us her consent to that trade, to that deal. And it's kind of surprising to me that she really didn't try to increase her end of the bargain. I mean, she knew how much Rachel wanted those mandrakes because she knew how much Rachel wanted children. And so I thought it was amazing that Leah did not counter Rachel's proposal by demanding at least two nights with Jacob, or even 
I mean, the mandrakes were like finding gold. So why didn't she say, well, okay, if you let me have Jacob one night a week? But she, she went along with just one night there. She wasn't quite the wheeler dealer, I guess, as her sister. All right, let's look now at a desire, verse 16. A desire. It says, And Jacob came out of the field in the evening, and Leah went out to meet him and said, Thou must come in unto me, for surely I have hired thee with my son's mandrakes. And what did the old fellow do? <laughs> and he lay with her that night. Oh, me. It tells us something about Leah's desire here to again be with her husband that she didn't even wait for him to come in from the the fields before she went out to meet him. This woman was desperate. Because it was the time of the wheat harvest, remember we talked about that earlier with Reuben, um, Jacob had probably been out in the wheat fields, you know, helping with the harvesting rather than out tending to the sheep. So he comes in from the, the wheat field and... Um, and Leah goes out to meet him. She had probably spent the entire day making herself attractive, you know, straightening out her tent, um, making, preparing a delicious meal. She probably had uh, gone all out to uh, make it, make for a very romantic evening, you know, and got some Yankee candles and lit them and <laughs> set the table real pretty probably also gotten a very reliable babysitter so that the boys would not be around to disrupt her their evening together. And uh, her greeting to her husband was very definitive here. I mean, there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. She says that he must come with her because she had hired him for the night with her son's mandrakes. Now, the word hire is a key word in the story of Jacob. We find it repeatedly over and over again uh, during his whole stay in Haran. That word keeps popping up. While outside of the land of blessing, you know, the land of promise, he's not in the land of promise, he's outside the land of blessing, Jacob was not viewed as the rightful heir of God's many blessed promises. He was merely seen as a servant. Even his wives had now reduced him to the status of a servant for hire. They, they had loaned him out to their handmaids, and now they used him, as I said before, as a trading commodity, or at least Rachel had. She was the one who had traded Jacob for the mandrakes. Leah truly wanted Jacob. And it's sad that he really only came to her now that Rachel had given her permission. All of this, what does all of this give us a picture of about concerning Jacob? I mean, very, very weak husband. Very weak man, actually, here. He, he let himself be juggled back and forth between his wives and their handmaids. And he did not stand up for what was right. I guess... He was just really enjoying this too much, is all I or trying to keep the peace or whatever. But he was definitely a weak husband. Of course, it really, he had this mess because he had really not stood up for what was right before this, you know, when he should have just taken one wife. So he himself had gotten himself into this complicated marital mess. He had no one to blame but himself. Well, at any rate, 
Jacob complied with the agreement which had been made between his wives. And we are told that he did lay with Leah that night. Apparently, now Leah had been praying a great deal to the Lord, you know, probably requesting both a reuniting with her husband and also more children, especially, you know, sons for him. Verse 17 tells us that God hearkened unto Leah. So we know that she was praying and uh, she conceived and she gave Jacob the fifth son. While the next few verses will reveal the fact that she and Jacob obviously did begin to spend additional nights together besides the one that Rachel had allowed. And uh, we know this because Leah has another son and then she also has a daughter. So she got her prayers answered. Let's look now at verses 17 to 20, a dowry. It says in verse 17, And God hearkened unto Leah, and she conceived, and Jacob bare the fifth son. And Leah said, God hath given me my hire. See the word hire again. Because I have given my maiden to my husband. And she called his name Issachar. And Leah conceived again and bare Jacob the sixth son. And Leah said, God hath endued me with a good dowry. Now will my husband dwell with me because I have borne him six sons. And she called his name Zebulun. It's enlightening here to note that the scripture, look at verse 17, tells us that Leah gave birth to her, what number? Fifth son. Why is this enlightening? Well... Because it tells us that those two sons of Ziplah, Zilpah, Ziplah, <laughs> Zippy, the two sons of Zilpah were not divinely viewed as Leah's sons, right? Because if they were really viewed as Leah's sons, then she would have just given birth to her four, five, six, seventh son. But it tells us she gave birth to her fifth son. So God did not consider those two sons of Zilpah her sons. You know, using one of the world's methods to produce offspring credited to her account had not worked, had it? It had not worked. Nobody was fooled. Gad and Asher were considered Jacob's sons, but nobody ever really looked at them as being Leah's sons. And the same was true for Dan and Naphtali. They were Jacob's sons. But nobody ever considered them Rachel's sons, not even Rachel, you know, or not even Leah. They knew, that, I mean, that those, Dan and Naphtali, those were the sons of Bilhah. So the maid solution did not work to give either Rachel or Leah true sons of their own. Just as we had seen earlier, it had not worked for who else? Right, Sarai, Sarah. She never looked at Ishmael as her own son. She rejected him, as a matter of fact, right after, practically after he was born. So the maid method did not work. Now we find out that neither did the mandrake method work. Because it was Leah who got pregnant. And she had given the mandrakes to Rachel. But Rachel did not get pregnant. It would be at least two more years before Rachel would finally conceive and have Joseph. So the scripture throughout makes it very clear. In this whole account, the scripture makes it clear that it is God and God alone who gives the fruit of the womb. 
the one who gave up the mandrakes got pregnant. I mean, she conceived. She actually had three more children. And the one who had the mandrakes didn't conceive for two more years after. You know, she ate them, but it was two years before she got pregnant. So it had nothing to do with the mandrakes. So God, in his grace, we find, heard Leah's prayer, and she conceived a fifth son. And apparently it was on that one night spent with Jacob. And she named her new son Issachar, which comes from the Hebrew word sakar, which means to hire. Or it can mean wages or reward. She was saying that the child was her reward or her wages for having hired her husband for the night, you know, with the mandrakes. She did, however, notice she made sure that everyone knew it was God who had given her the child, not the mandrakes. She had given the mandrakes to her sister, so she wanted everybody to know it was God who gave her the child. Leah also somehow thought, now this was wrong, but somehow in her thinking, she thought that the reason God had blessed her with Issachar had to do with the fact that she had given her handmaid to Jacob. Now, it's difficult to imagine her thoughts in this regard because, I mean, it's just so strange to us to even think like that because we know that definitely God would not reward her for such a thing as that. But it may be, you know, to her, in, in her way of thinking, that it was a huge sacrifice for her to be willing to hand her husband over to another woman just to attempt to maintain a hold on him. But whatever the reason for her statement was, we know that it was wrong. I mean, God did not reward her with Issachar because she had given Zilpah to Jacob. God answered her prayer for his own divine purposes, his own reasons. But God did not reward Leah with Issachar because of the immorality that she had precipitated between her handmaid and her husband. So she was wrong here, you know, in her, in her reason for thinking that she had gotten another son. Now, apparently Leah's one-night hire of Jacob and the resulting son that she had did, apparently this did cause Jacob to pay more attention to Leah than had been the case, at least for a while. If Rachel had been keeping him from Leah's tent, which it does look like she had been doing, then Jacob finally stopped listening to her. You know, he finally stood up to her. The mandrakes, he might have seen, th- thought in his mind, well, the mandrakes did absolutely nothing for Rachel. God was obviously withholding children from her for whatever reason, while God was giving additional children to Leah. So if Jacob was going to continue to have sons, which was very important to him, then he needed to spend more time with which wife? With Leah, all right? And he must have, because Leah conceived again and gave birth to a sixth son, verse 19. And that son she named Zebulun, which means dwelling and possibly also can mean honor. Some etymologists, which are those who study, you know, the origin of of words, have even suggested that uh, the words glory and heaven are the root idea behind the name Zebulun. 
Now, Leah's comment at the birth of her sixth son, which would be Jacob's tenth son, by the way. Zebulun is Jacob's tenth son, uh, Leah's sixth son. Her comment shows her here in a very optimistic mood. And she gave a dual explanation for his name, for the name Zebulun. First of all, she focused on God's mercy to her. She said, God hath endued me. This is in verse 20, by the way. She said, God hath endued me with a good dowry. She chose the name Zebulun, therefore, in honor of God. Remember, it can mean the word the name honor as well as dwelling. So she chose the name in honor of God who had now given her six sons. Her second reason for the choice of the name was her great confidence that Jacob would now honor her by dwelling with her because she had given him six sons. Now, Jacob may never have permanently dwelled with Leah as long as Rachel was in the picture, but he would have spent many years dwelling with Leah when? After Rachel died, right? So uh, eventually her, her desire would be met. We'll talk about that a little bit later. Also think about this. The interesting thing here is to consider that God answered the longing of Leah's heart because she truly was honored by God himself when he sent his own son, the Lord Jesus Christ, into the world through her fourth son, Judah, and also when he, that son, the Lord Jesus Christ, came to dwell in Nazareth of Zebulun. What does Zebulun mean? Dwelling. Now, you know the 12 tribes each had a hunk of Israel. It was all, you know, divide, they took Israel and they divided it up, and each tribe was given a piece of the land of Israel. And there the boundaries are all spelled out and everything. Nazareth, where the Lord Jesus dwelt for the majority of his life, was located in the land of Zebulun, which means dwelling. So God honored Leah by that, didn't he? But he also balances things out. He compensates things. And that's one of your homework questions. I'll just give this to you. He sent his son to dwell in Nazareth of Zebulun. Zebulun was Leah's son. But where was Jesus born? Bethlehem. And Bethlehem is in the land of, you won't, everybody, I thought you'd say Judah, but it isn't. Bethlehem is in the land of um, Benjamin. And Benjamin was Rachel's son. So he, he balances everything out. You'll, it's just perfect how he does that. Anyway, between the two wives. All right. Benjamin. Mm-hmm. Okay, it would appear that Jacob did indeed dwell a great deal more with Leah after this because she gave birth to a seventh son, and, I mean seventh child, and this child was a girl. And in, you can imagine in a house full of little boys that this daughter must have quickly become the great center of attention. So let's look at a daughter in verse 21. It says, And afterwards she bare a daughter and called her name Dinah. The note of triumph expressed by Leah at Zebulun's birth 
is carried through here now in the meaning of her daughter's name because Dinah, just like the name Dan, if you go back and look at verse 6, Dinah means judged or vindicated. They They both come from the same root word. Now, notice that no comment is made by Leah with regard to Dinah's birth. There's no comment. It just says that she, she bore a daughter and her name was Dinah. It's really, you know, just special enough that the daughter's name was even mentioned, much less a comment, because generally the names of daughters are not included at all unless they are going to play a significant role later on in the historical record. And we do find that Dinah does indeed become significant over in Genesis chapter 34. Actually, like her name, she becomes the the reason for a very sad account of judgment and vindication. However, Leah did not name her daughter, you know, knowing of that yet future event. She named her daughter Dinah because she felt that she had been vindicated of her shame in not having been properly loved by her husband. Having given Jacob seven children, and seven is the number of completion, right? So she's through. This is her last. Having given him seven children, he had to, Jacob had to now judge her as being worthy of his love and marital obligations. So Leah, we leave Leah um, finally seemingly at peace with her situation. She's finally at peace because we read no more of her striving, you know, with her sister, between, or striving between her and her sister. Even Rachel came to the point where she finally stopped going to the world's solutions for her burden. She apparently humbled herself before the Lord and turned to him and him alone for her hope, for her answer. And in grace, what did he do? He remembered her. Let's look at now part two of our outline, the motherhood of Rachel. And for this, I'm going to read verses 22 to 24. All right, it says, And God remembered Rachel, and God hearkened to her and opened her womb, and she conceived and bare a son and said, God hath taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph and said, The Lord shall add to me another son. So these three verses here bring this long episode of uh, sibling rivalry and spiritual immaturity finally to a happy ending. Aren't you all glad it ends happily? At least for now. <laughs> At long last and several, several years after she ate the mandrakes, God opened Rachel's womb. Rachel, who had been rather proud of her beauty and her ability to dominate her husband's affections, had apparently been, you know, now sufficiently humbled through her trials. She had learned that trying the world's solutions to her problem had not worked at all. Her anger toward her husband had only resulted in friction in their marriage. Her envy of her sister had done nothing but eat her up inside, which is the way envy works. Her meanness toward her sister had certainly not brought anybody happiness. In fact, it probably only made Rachel feel worse. You know, she may have felt very guilty 
about having withheld Jacob from her sister, especially when she saw how much just one night with him meant to Leah. Also, Rachel found out that surrogate motherhood through her handmaid had not brought her the fulfillment that she was desiring. And so, too, had the mandrakes failed her, miserably failed her. Um, So through all of these experimental human methods to overcome her heavy burden, Rachel finally learned that there was only one who could help her, and she turned to him in prayer. It wasn't the mandrakes. It was the mercy and the might of God which enabled Rachel to finally have a child. The Lord, you see, all along had been waiting for her to come to him, you know, and come to him alone not praying to him and then turning to some human method. And uh, it says he remembered her. Of course, he had never forgotten her, but this means he, he's now focusing on her. He's going to help her out here. And he opened her womb. And she gave birth to her first son, which was Jacob's what? Eleventh son. Jacob is the 11th son of I mean, Joseph is the 11th son of Jacob. Actually, the 12th child, right? Because if you count Dinah, the 12th child, but the 11th son. And she named him Joseph, of course. Now, God may not have blessed her with a great quantity of sons, like her sister, but he certainly gave her a son of quality. Joseph, and see here again the compensation? You know, one had a lot of sons, but one had, one had quantity, one had quality. Joseph was truly the most Christ-like of all of Jacob's 12 sons. No doubt about it. Now, the name Joseph, interesting, interestingly enough, can actually mean two things. It doesn't seem to make sense to us, but his name can mean either to take away or to add. And I thought, wow, wouldn't that be confusing in a math class? But that's true. His name can mean either to take away or to add. Rachel's birth comments relay to us that she had both of those meanings in mind when she named Joseph, Joseph. She declared that God had taken away her reproach. And she went on to say, in great faith here, that the Lord would add to her another son. So she just got taken away and add to. She uses a play on words. She uses uh, both meanings of Joseph's name there in her comments. Now, this is really wonderful to see. There's several things that are wonderful to see here. First of all, it's wonderful to find that both sisters, Leah and Rachel, end their seven-year struggle with expressions of faith. Remember I said it is a happy ending, at least in this session. Leah, whose burden had been her, her um, loneliness, she had faith that her husband would dwell with her, right? Zebulun, her husband would dwell with her. And Rachel, whose burden had been her barrenness, now shows faith that in addition to Joseph... God, the Lord, is going to give her yet another son. Now, actually, it's interesting to discover that the Lord honored the faith of both women by the same event. The birth 
of Rachel's additional son, Benjamin, served to make Leah's desire to permanently dwell with her husband come true. You see, Rachel died giving birth to that additional son. Benoni, she named him, meaning son of my sorrow, who Jacob, you know, changed the name to Benjamin, meaning son of the right hand. And after Rachel's death, Jacob only had one wife, right? Of course, he had a couple concubines, but he only had one wife, and she was Leah. And who do you think he would dwell with? Leah. He would dwell with, you know what? Do you, have you ever done the math here on this? This is interesting. Jacob was only married to Rachel 13 years before she died. He was married to Leah 64 years, 51 of them after Rachel died. So do you think Leah got the desire of her heart? Yes. You see again God's compensation? He really, really loved Rachel, which is probably good because he only had her for a short time. He had Leah for many, many, many years. And do you think that eventually he he came to love Leah? I do. I do. Who, Who was he buried with? He did not choose to be buried with Rachel. He chose to be buried with his wife, Leah. And who would have raised Rachel's two sons? Joseph, who would have been about six years old when his mother died, and baby Benjamin. Who do you think raised those two boys? Leah. See, that sometimes these are things we don't think about, right? It's also wonderful to find that Rachel no longer merely referred to God as Elohim, as she had done before. Now, there's nothing wrong with that great name, Elohim. We love that name. Name. It tells us that God is not only triune because of the I am plural ending, but it's the name of him as creator and as the giver of life. So it's a great name. Yet, it's not the name Yahweh. It's not the name Jehovah. It's not the covenant name of God, the redemption name of God, which Leah had earlier used. Now we find for the very first time, Rachel also referred to God as the Lord in verse 24, and that is the name Yahweh or Jehovah, the covenant-keeping God of redemption. This beautiful younger sister who had been rather haughty and self-sufficient had been humbled before the Lord. And her statement at the birth of Joseph was that the God of salvation had removed her judgment. He had met her need and he had taken away her reproach. So the birth of Joseph was the spiritual apex for Rachel, just as the birth of Judah had been the spiritual apex for Leah. The Lord, you see how the Lord had worked? Isn't he wonderful? Isn't he magnificent? He had used the burdens of both women to do what? To draw them to himself. And that's why we shouldn't be negative against burdens. God can use burdens for blessings. Exactly. But in addition to using their trials and their burdens and their troubles to bring them to himself, the Lord had also been doing something else. And this is magnificent. 
You know, when we, we've been looking at this, and it's been hilarious, and it's been kind of sad at the same time, and it's been like a soap opera, and we're going, oh, my goodness, you know, this is worse than some of these romantic novels that you can pick up in the newsstand and all that sort of thing. But God knows what he's doing. He's going way beneath the surface of all of this. And he is orchestrating something absolutely magnificent. And I wish I had time to do both of these, but I'm only going to have time to show you one. In the name, you know, with each son, two, we had two things given to us. We would have the name of the son given to us. And then we would have a birth comment given to us, right? Okay, now if you take all the birth comments from Reuben down to Benjamin. I know we don't, Benjamin doesn't get born until four more chapters here. But if you take the birth, their birth comments that the mothers made, they actually give to us the prophecy of the history of Israel. And it's, maybe I'll, maybe I'll squeeze it in next, our, the beginning of our next lesson, because it's, I just hate to pass it over. But they give to us the history of Israel. It's, and it's, it's wonderful. Remember now, Jacob's name gets changed to Israel. All 12 sons were the fathers of the nation of Israel. So it makes sense that, that they, their comment, the birth comments, would spell out the history of Israel. And that's exactly what happens. So it wasn't just... I mean, God took the sins, yes, of all this struggling and striving and, and giving handmaids and they had children. He took all that and again... He used it for good. He used it for his own divine purposes. Because if Gad and Asher and Dan and Naphtali weren't in there, we wouldn't have a perfect picture of the history of Israel. Same thing is true with what we're going to look at now. Okay? The second thing that he gave, well, that the scripture gave to us in addition to the birth comments, it was, as I said, the names of the, um, the sons. And their names spell out for us the redemption story. And the pathway of a sinner saved by grace. <clears throat> I just this is the this is the kind of thing that is so magnificent that I wish everybody everywhere in all the churches could understand and know because then the Bible would be lifted up as the magnificent book that it is. You know, this is stuff that you don't hear in sad to say you don't hear it in churches. And I don't understand why, because this is what just solidifies our faith, that this book is divinely inspired, no way around it. So let's look at this, and I think you're going to be amazed too. The subtitle for our whole Genesis study is what? Jesus in Genesis, because we have repeatedly seen that the Lord Jesus appears in one way or another in just about every single lesson. He, of course, is at the very root of the whole redemption story. Christ was not only the person of the Trinity who was chosen um, to be man's savior, you know, sometime in eternity past, but he was active along with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit in the creation of this entire universe and in the creation of man. And if you missed our first year's study on Genesis, you really need to get the tapes or the book. Because Jesus Christ is our creator. Not only our redeemer, he is our creator. And then from the time of the fall of man in the garden, the revelation of his coming 
was shared with man, you know, right away, Genesis 3.15. Throughout our whole look at Genesis, we have been very carefully studying the account of God's preservation of the Messianic line, you know, the line through whom would come this coming Savior, this promised seed of the woman. Uh, We have been seeing how he preserved the line, you know, from Adam through Seth, through Noah, through Shem, all the way on down the Shemites to Abraham, then through Abraham's son Isaac, then through Isaac's son Jacob, and now, of course, through Jacob's 12 sons from whom came the nation of Israel. And Christ has also appeared repeatedly to us in other ways, through appearances of such mysterious characters as Melchizedek and also the angel of the Lord. He has appeared to us through direct appearances. You know, he actually appeared to Abraham. Um, Also through pictures given to us in dreams and in types and even through names. We've seen that before, and we're going to see it again. That's what we're going to look at now. It's truly amazing to discover how God, as I said, used the burdens and the strife and and the jealousies and the desires, as well as the joys and the praises of Jacob's wives and his concubines, um, which were expressed in the names of the, the, the sons, the 12 sons, that God uses to give us a prophetic message about God's plan of salvation through this Redeemer, this promised seed of the woman, the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is just one more way that we can be certain that we stand, you know, behind a book that was divinely inspired by God. So let's consider the significance of the names now of Jacob's 12 sons. All right. We start with Reuben. What did Reuben's name mean? Behold a son. This is really the main message of the entire Bible. Men of all ages are to be beholding the son. You know, whether he was the coming son or the one who's already come. We're to have our eyes focused on the son, the promised seed of the woman. The son who would come, who did come through Abraham's descendants who came through the nation of Israel, and in particular, the son Judah. And this was the message, was it not, of John the Baptist? You know, at the beginning of the New Testament, we have the same message. He was the one who gave the official announcement about the arrival of the son when he pointed at the son, and what did he say? Behold the son. <laughs> Behold the Lamb of God, which cometh to take away the sins of the world, John one twenty nine. So the message of the gospel, which was fully revealed in the New Testament, is this. Get your focus on the only begotten Son of God, John 3.16. For it is in him that redemption is made possible. So Reuben pictures for us the person of redemption. Who's the person? The Son. The God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Reuben pictures the person of the son. Now, the second of Jacob's sons was named Simeon, or Shimeon, you would pronounce it, which means hearing. A person cannot experience salvation without hearing the salvation message. Faith cometh by 
hearing and hearing by the word of God. How shall they hear without a preacher? Hear and your soul shall live. The Shema, which is in Deuteronomy 6.4, is uh, the most important verse of the Old Testament to the Jews. It's called the Shema. Deuteronomy 6.4 is um, actually the hearing. And it says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Now the word Shema, where do you think that word comes from? It means the hearing. It comes from the same root word that we get the name Shimeon. Shema, Shimeon. We say Simeon. They would say Shimeon. Did anybody, can anybody think of another person's name that we've already looked at whose, whose name comes from the same root word for to hear? Ishmael. His name, remember, meant to hear. Ishmael. You hear it? Shimeon, Shema, Ishmael. <laughs> All those words mean hearing or to hear. So Simeon pictures for us the preaching of redemption. Now the third son was Levi. And his name means attached or joined. When a person beholds the son puts his or her focus on the Son, on Jesus Christ, and hears with willing ears the gospel message about the Son, then the next step in redemption is for him to be joined or attached to Christ, um, the Son, by faith, by way of his faith. The Apostle Paul spoke of believers as those who have been joined unto the Lord, 1 Corinthians six seventeen. And Christ himself spoke of believers or his followers as being joined or attached to him as branches attached to a vine. Actually, when you're saved, we, we say we're in Christ. We're joined to him. Another picture given to us of this joining is that Christ is pictured as the bridegroom and we are pictured corporately, the church, as his bride. And the two of us, you know, become one. So Levi pictures, we could say, the peace of redemption. Because when a sinner by faith becomes joined to Christ, he has made his peace with God. It's also interesting to consider the fact that um, when a person receives Christ as Lord and Savior, he becomes immediately part of the royal priesthood. Of Christ, and remember, Levi is the this was the son from whom came the Levitical priesthood. So Levi not only pictures for us the peace of redemption, but he also pictures for us the priesthood of the redeemed. We are all part of the royal priesthood. Now, Jacob's fourth son was Judah, and you remember his name, don't you? What it meant. Praise. He pictures the praise of the redeemed, the praise that comes into the believer's heart because of the Lord's forgiveness of his sins and the salvation which accompanies that forgiveness. In fact, um, 
The verse I just talked about, 1 Peter 2.9, which speaks about us being a royal priesthood, it gives to us really the same sequential order that we find in the sons Levi and Judah. It says, but ye are a chosen generation. This is talking to believers, about believers. We are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, Levi, Okay, and holy nation, a peculiar people, and we can all say amen to that, that ye should show forth what? The praises, that's Judah, the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So, beholding the son, Reuben, hearing the message, hearing the message of the son, Simeon, becoming attached by faith to the son, Levi, are steps in the redemption process which then bring about great joy and praise Judah for the son, right? So the order is perfect here. Now the fifth son of Jacob, born from Bilhah, now you'll really have something to write. (laughs) The fifth son, if you look at five, his name was Dan, which means judged or vindicated. He pictures the pardon of the redeemed. The one who has come to Christ is vindicated or pardoned by who? By the judge for his sins, for her sins. He is justified by Christ, as it says in Romans 5.1. I hope, hope you'll listen to me more than writing because I don't want you to miss this. God's pardon is only possible because of his grace. And in the Bible, the number five is the biblical symbol for grace. And notice Dan is the fifth son. So he represents, Dan represents the pardon of the redeemed. The next son was Naphtali, whose name means wrestling or struggling. And it's very appropriate that he was the sixth son. Because six, how many of you know this? Six is the biblical number for what? Man, right. The newly saved person will almost immediately realize that he has an ongoing struggle with his old man, with his carnal nature, with his flesh. Not only that, but he also enters into a spiritual battle with evil. What does it say in Ephesians 6, 1? 6, 12, excuse me. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. So that's a struggle, isn't it? Against evil forces. So too will the new believer realize his wrestling or struggling, so to speak, that takes place through the avenue of effectual, fervent prayer. James 5.16. Prayer is a great, great, great weapon along with the Word of God, the sword of the Spirit. Um, These are the two greatest weapons of the Christian Well, I don't know if I should say that because salvation is very important also. But these are great weapons of the Christian soldier in his struggle against his three enemies, the flesh, the world, and Satan. 
So Neftali pictures for us both the problem of the redeemed, which is our struggle against our old man and our struggle against you know, ev- the evil of this world, and also he represents the prayer of the redeemed, which is another battle. I mean, not a, a struggle, a wrestling, you know, to wrestle in prayer and be persistent and consistent and all that is involved in prayer. Well, the seventh son of Jacob was the first son of Zilpah. That was Leah's, she was Leah's handmaid. And his name uh, was Gad, remember Gad, G-A-D, which means a um, troop cometh. So he pictures for us the people of redemption. It is very, very vital for the believer to fellowship with other believers. They need to come together to fortify one another in their mutual ongoing struggle with their enemies. And this is why scripture tells us that we are not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. Um, You know, if you don't belong to a local church as a member, you really need to. It's scriptural. It's a a commandment. You are to um, assemble together with other believers. You can't make it out there on your own. We need one another. Together we form the army of the Lord, a troop. One day, when it is time for the full completion, what son is this? Seventh. When it's time for the full completion, seven is the biblical number for completion. (laughs) When it's time for the full completion of God's redemption plan, Christ is going to return to this earth with all of the redeemed of the church age and also with all the heavenly hosts. So those guys who are down here on planet earth fighting it out at the battle of Armageddon are going to look up in the sky and they're going to say, Ho, ho, a troop cometh. <laughs> They're going to say, good gad. <laughs> oh, boy. So gad pictures the people of redemption. All right, the eighth son of Jacob, also born by Zilpah, was named Asher. And what did his name mean? Remember the seven dwarfs? <laughs> Happy. He is a picture of the pleasure of the redeemed. Salvation in Christ and fellowship with other believers, that brings what? Happiness. Happiness which is an inner joy, you know, a true and lasting uh, happiness. A joy unspeakable. The joy of redemption in Christ is the only real and lasting happiness that there is the pleasures of sin last what only for a season and they don't satisfy christ's joy is forever and it is eternally satisfying and by the way eight is the biblical number for resurrection what is the greatest joy of our faith our belief our hope in the resurrection now the ninth son of Jacob, who was born of Leah, we looked at him in this lesson, was named Issachar, which means wages or hire. You see, the believer is saved to serve. There is a purpose for redemption. There is a purpose for the redeemer, for the um, redeemed. And it is to serve the living God. One day also, 
at the judgment seat of Christ, if we desire reward or wages, which is also what the name Issachar means, if we desire reward for our services, you know, down here on planet Earth, in other words, if we want not everything to be burned up as wood, hay, and stubble, and if we would love to have some crowns so that we have something to cast at the Lord's feet, then we need to prove faithful and steadfast in our hire, in our service while we are here on on this world, in this earth. We are his servants, his stewards. We are his workmanship, created unto what? Good works. So he represents the purpose for the redeemed, Issachar. Now, Jacob's tenth son also came by way of Leah, and we looked at him this morning also, and his name was Zebulun, which means dwelling. His name speaks of the promise of the redeemed, the promise which motivates us to together as a troop, Gad, to together as a troop happily, Asher, serve Issachar, <laughs> Christ, <laughs> That the thing that motivates us to do that, to, to happily together serve Christ, is the great promise of one day dwelling, Zebulun, with him forever in heaven. Jesus gave us this promise, didn't he, when he said, In my Father's house are many mansions, but the Greek actually means dwelling places. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take and uh, receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. And it says in 1 Thessalonians 4, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. As Christ, remember I told you this earlier, as Christ spent the vast majority of his life, his earthly life, dwelling in Zebulon, you know, Nazareth of Zebulon, will the redeemed one day go to dwell with him in the eternal Zebulon, in the eternal dwelling place. Now, the first son of Rachel and the eleventh son of Jacob was this special child named Joseph. And remember, I told you Joseph means both to take away and to add. And almost one-fourth of the book of Genesis is dedicated to the study of this man, of Joseph. He is the most comprehensive type, the most comprehensive picture of the Lord Jesus Christ in a single individual that we have in all of the Bible. There are over 100 ways in which Joseph is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, would it not make great sense if his name was also a picture in message about Jesus Christ? Yes, it would. The Lord Jesus, you see, had to be taken away before he could, everybody, add. He had to be taken away before he could add because he was willing to live a sinless life on earth and because he was willing to be taken away from this earth by the sacrifice of himself on the cross for our sins, we can, if we believe on him, we can be added to the population of a forever sinless condition 
with him, you know, dwelling with him in heaven. He had to die in order to bring forth much fruit. John 12:24. You know, as a corn of wheat must die and be buried before it can bring forth much fruit. He had to be taken away before he could add. So Joseph therefore speaks of the prophetic person of the redeemer. But there is a sense in which Joseph's name also speaks of the progress. I'll move this up a little bit. The progress of the redeemed, meaning the progress of you and me. As the Christian grows spiritually, he must constantly be taking away from himself the sins which so easily beset him, right? We're to be taking away, taking away, taking away as we grow in Christ. Dropping all these bad habits, dropping all these bad attitudes, dropping all these things that bring us down. Also, at the same time that we're dropping, we should be adding adding to. We should be growing spiritually. You know, as newborn babes, we should desire the sincere milk of the word that we may grow thereby. What does it say? It says add to your faith virtue and add to virtue patience, brotherly kindness, and all those sort of things. We're always to be adding to. We are to be growing in our spiritual walk with the Lord. So Joseph not only pictures the prophetic person of the redeemer, but he pictures, and I don't even have that up there. He pictures the progress of the redeemed. Now, the twelfth son of Jacob, oh, also he pictures the price of the redeemed because he had to be taken away. You know, he had to go to the cross. So he three things, the prophetic person of the redeemer, the progress of the redeemed, and the price of the redeemer. Okay? Now, the twelfth son of Jacob we haven't really talked about because he isn't born until six years from where we are in the study. But, uh, and he was the one who was born at the time of Rachel's death. He actually had two names. Now, Joseph had two meanings to his name, but Benjamin actually had two names. And again, his names picture for us the person of the Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. As Rachel's soul was departing, and you can read about that, it's fascinating to see, as her soul was actually departing from her body, she quickly named her her newborn son Benoni, which means in Hebrew, son of my sorrow. Well, Jacob thought that would probably be a bad name, you know, and maybe a bad premonition of things. So he changed Benoni's name to Benjamin, which means son of the right hand. The taking away of Joseph's name goes hand in hand with the name Benoni, son of my sorrow. For it was through the suffering and the death of Jesus Christ that we are given the picture of Christ as both the man of sorrows, Isaiah 53.3, and the son of God's sorrow, because it heavily grieved the Father to watch men take and torture and crucify his only begotten son. Yet that suffering of his son was God's own gift to man because it was man's only way of salvation. Now, Rachel's death and Benjamin's birth prefigure for us, they picture for us the death 
and the resurrection of Christ. Because out of death came life. Out of Rachel's dying womb came the son of his father's right hand. Just as out of the tomb of death came the son who would ascend to sit, he would ascend into heaven to sit on the right hand of his father in heaven. So the son of sorrow, Benoni, became the son of the right hand, the resurrected son of glory, Benjamin. The name Benoni then not only pictures the prophetic person of Christ, of the Redeemer, as the man of sorrows, but it also pictures the price of redemption, just like the taking away of Joseph's name pictured the price of redemption. Christ had to shed his own blood and die. That's the price of redemption. The name Benjamin pictures not only the prophetic person of the Redeemer as the Son of God, but it also pictures the power of redemption. You know, the power of the Lord Jesus Christ over sin and death is spoken of as the power of his resurrection. Because Christ, in his resurrected power, has triumphed over sin and death and the grave, he now sits at the right hand of the throne of God. So he is the resurrected, glorified, eternal son of the living God. So, you see what happens here? I don't know if I can get the whole thing on there. We come full circle with the names of Jacob's 12 sons. We end where we began. Because Christ is the beginning and the end. He is the Alpha and Omega. He is the first and the last. We began with beholding the Son who came to earth so that he might seek and save that which was lost. And we end by also beholding the Son. We behold him on the cross as the man of sorrow, the son of sorrow dying in our place. And we behold him sitting in resurrected glory where? At the right hand of his Father in heaven. So from Reuben to Benjamin... The 12 tribes of the nation of Israel spell out for us the gospel story of the Redeemer.